Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owen, sitting in the studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Um, good evening, Brother Nathan, and let me thank those who are listening to the program. Thank you for allowing us to come into your home this evening. Pastor Murphy, before we jump into our topic of the church's role in society, we have a few WhatsApp questions that have come in. This one comes from a listener in Antigua. I'm in my 50s and have never gotten married. I've been praying to God for a mate for many years, and still I've seen and heard of people remarrying two and three times. I am a Christian and have been for years. Is it possible that I missed the gate, the mate that God had for me? Well, it, it may be possible. I'm not too sure if you were looking for Mr. Perfect. There's no Mr. Perfect. And I know there are people who want the ideal husband, but uh, chances are you're not going to find the ideal person because we're all sinners in, fact, in spite of the fact that we're saved. I would like to encourage you to know that I have a missionary friend who started the works in, in uh, Barbados, and um, she got married um, in her late 60s and 70s, and she's happily married to an ex pastor who lost his wife Uh, so don't give up hope Uh, you're 50 you're still young and it's possible the Lord can still bring somebody in in your life but I I keep telling people if you are looking for a partner you think you're not designed to be celibate you've got to put yourself in the place where you can find a partner I recommend to people for example if you belong to a church that has conferences where you get all the churches from the islands coming together, uh, invest in uh, your spiritual life as well as your social life by attending a conference of that nature. If you find that within your church the pool is too small and you know the fishing is, is, is uh, fish a few, I would recommend you widen the scope. Uh, and Maybe when your churches come together again, rather than take that as a Sunday off, uh, attend those kind of functions. But keep on praying and um, keep asking the Lord. It doesn't mean because you're 50 that you're not going to find a partner. There are people who find partners later in life. At this juncture, uh, you might have saved yourself from a lot of hurt as well, a lot of pain. Um, One way of looking at it is that you've probably been deprived of an opportunity to have a, a social partner. The other way to look at it is that you probably could have married somebody that could have ruined your life and uh, caused so much hurt uh, in your life. So just keep on trusting the Lord is sovereign. If there is a partner for you and your purpose is to get married and if that's God's will for your life, it's going to happen. Nothing can stop it. 
So don't become disillusioned that because you're 50, you haven't found a partner. Um, that can still happen uh, in your life. So don't, don't be discouraged. Pastor, what about the case where an individual is in their 50s but has a child or children, they've never been married? How does that affect their likelihood of finding a spouse? I think that compounds the problem. Uh, most men, um, I don't even just use the word most men, a lot of men are very irresponsible even with their own natural children. They don't, um, if you're dealing with a school situation like we have at school and you're dealing with school fees and stuff like that, you find that in, in a great majority of cases, it's the mother that's the one trying to keep the child in school. Mm. Uh, and when you contact the father about school fees, he's very angry and upset that you would actually call him on those matters. Uh, if you speak to some young men uh, who are troubled, generally speaking, there's no father contact. The mother's the one who is the taking care. She's a single parent, basically. Now, when you have a situation where men are not responsible for their own kids, how in the world is a person who already had children uh, going to find a responsible man who's going to shoulder that responsibility? So it really compounds the problem for a person to go in that direction. That's why I think, I think, I think the wisdom of God designing that uh, intimacy was designed for only within the context of sex and children come out of, 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 of a husband and wife. You can see the wisdom of that as you look back on it. And a lot of the problems we face in society, a lot of the social problems, poverty, etc., et really stems from the fact of the, the, the level of immorality within the society and the reckless lifestyle that people live. Uh, we want to blame everybody for, for, for the situation, but in actual fact, if every man would have his own wife and every woman would have her own husband, a lot of the social problems we're faced with today would not really exist. So, But it does compound the problem, and I think that young people need to be taught that in school, especially when you're teaching sex education and teaching uh, about the home and the family, family education. I think that needs to be taught to these children to, so they understand that don't follow what has happened before. Look at what is out there and the, the, the misery that's out there and you don't want to go that route. That's why you you, you, you practice abstinence until you've come, you find a partner in life. That needs to be taught within the school. Thank you very much to the individual or the listener who sent in that question. Pastor, another WhatsApp question from a listener. If I was in the living room and someone else was in the bedroom and I said something in a low tone and the person doesn't hear, but I said it in a vexed way because I was very upset, can I ask God to forgive me for saying something like that? Or should I also ask the person and tell them that I am sorry, even though they didn't hear me? Well, look, this is a matter of conscience. We all say things under the breath of our mouth that we probably wish we could have said louder, but we are in a, a state of anger. Let your conscience convict you. If you're convinced that what you've done is wrong and it's bothering you, it's a very simple thing. You ask God forgiveness. But generally speaking, you don't bring people into a situation that they're not aware of. Hmm. In other words, I, if, I, if that were the case, we'd be going to everybody every day because yeah. we've got, all of us have had thoughts that were wrong and the other person doesn't know. So if it comes to the point that every time I have a wrong thought about somebody or say something that I shouldn't say, i got to keep going to the person, I, I am not too sure uh, if we'll ever stop that. This is a matter between you and God. You haven't committed an offense against the person in the sense that you've done something that they are aware that you've done wrong. And... Uh, so I, I would not recommend that because you've, you, uh, you've said something or you, the person didn't hear, whatever it is. If, if the Lord convicts you about it, um, 
confess it to him, um, explain that you're sorry, whatever it is. If it is something the other person is aware of and it becomes a, a, a cause of friction between you and that individual, well, you might have to deal with it on a confessional basis to that person. But uh, there's no need that every time you say something or do something that the other person doesn't know you feel bad. You've got to go to the person. Well, you know, this is what I was thinking about. <laughs> Think about what that would mean. Uh, and remember that even though we're saved, we still have feet of clay. We're still sinful. We have one of these kind of thoughts. Uh, so, but deal between you and, and God on these matters and things that are public between you and the individual. You solve those things publicly. A very... Uh thought-provoking or question that came in from a listener. Thank you very much for sending that in. Another listener asks a series of questions. I'll read through the paragraph, and then we'll take it one by one. The seventh day is a rest day. We work from Monday to Friday and should rest the seventh day. Which of those days should you go and worship? Can you worship in your home? Can you go to church on Sunday and worship? The Bible says we should rest the seventh day because God rested the seventh day. It doesn't say to go to church. So should I go to church on the Sunday, the eighth day, or is it a pagan day? So, Yeah. Look, I, I, this is a question. It's a perennial question. It keeps coming up again and again. And my, my answer to that question is Paul's answer to the question. Let every man be fully persuaded in his mind in respect to what day he considers to be holy. The Sabbath was a day of rest. But remember, the Sabbath was a shadow of things to come. It was a reflection of the fact that there's going to be an eternal rest that would come through Jesus Christ. It fulfilled its purpose in reminding the, the, the throughout history that this eternal rest is coming. So it pointed to that ultimate rest that was offered in Christ Jesus. Uh, now that Christ has come, uh, that rest is fulfilled. And we don't worship God on any one day. We worship God seven days a week. The Christian life uh, sanctifies every single day. And therefore, it's not a matter I'm going to just serve God on Sunday so I can do anything I I want to do Monday, Tuesday, Saturday. No, it doesn't work that way. Once you understand that um, this eternal rest that you have in Christ Jesus by putting your faith and trust in Him, your whole life from Monday until Sunday is designed to live for the glory of God. But under the old covenant, Saturday was also a day that recognized the old economy of law. It was also a symbol of the old creation, and it was also a symbol of the redemption out of Egypt. Now we have a new day, and that day is Sunday. It's a commemoration of the new creation that we are in Christ Jesus, and it's also a token of the new covenant that we have as a result of Christ's redemptive work on our behalf. So the church from its inception, you go into the book of Acts, you'll find that Paul uh, preached on the first day of the week. You'll find that the Holy Spirit came on the first day of the week. you find that the church was founded on the first day of the week. The Lord was recognized on the first day of the week. you find that Paul says, collect the offering on the first day of the week. You, you can't help but observe it. Becomes, and then we come to John. We're talking about the Lord's Day. That word, Lord, there is a unique Greek word, Lordian Day. And the only other place that it's found is in the Lordian Supper. It's, a, it's not the day of the Lord that the Bible talks about in the Old Testament, which is to come. It's a special day set aside uh, in recognition of Christ's resurrection. So, but again, if all of that argument doesn't come... And by the way, we did a... Uh, uh, we did a we did a program on the Sabbath, and if you would uh, contact Brother Nathan, I think he will give it to you, and maybe he'll give it to you tonight. But we also showed you that we quoted from the first century right through that the church was meeting on the first day of the week. It didn't begin with Constantine in three, 312 um, uh, uh, A.D., 
it is true that after he became converted, he uh, turned that day into a regular day of worship in the Roman Empire. It is recognized that, but he never started uh, worship on Sunday. This was just to continue what was being practiced by the church and legalize it within the Roman Empire. So the idea that Constantine changed the day of worship is, is a myth. It's a really big myth that people don't really uh, they get wrapped in. But I would like to say again, uh, read Colossians. And read the book of Romans, and you see very clearly that this matter of which day you worship on is a matter of conscience. And if you want to worship on the Sabbath, that's your choice. But don't try to discourage people who believe that the proper day is Sunday, uh, that they want to worship on Sunday. Give people Christian liberty in regard to these whole things. And they think we would just do that. We can solve a lot of the problems. If you're interested in listening to that episode, it's a 60-minute episode, go to Google, type in That's Truth Podcast, and you can choose your preferred provider, whether it's Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and you click on the link and go to episode four, number four, the fourth episode that we did, and it is entitled The Sabbath. And... That episode is focused specifically on that topic. Thank you for sending in that question. And, Pastor, we have questions that are continuing to come in. We have one that has just come in on WhatsApp from Antigua. Good night, Pastor. Great program. Do you believe a child of God should be married to a child of God who has been divorced before the person became a Christian? Good question. Very good question. Um, number one, I, 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 as you know, if, if you've been listening to the program, I believe there are only two biblical grounds for divorce, and that is if a person has committed adultery and if a person is abandoned. You find that one in Matthew eight, Matthew 19 and the other one in First Corinthians chapter 7. However, as I keep telling people, I am always for healing a marriage. I think that people make mistakes in life, and I think there ought to be room for forgiveness and pardon. But the idea of perpetually committing adultery and living in immorality and uh, the, the, the other partner just endures that. Not only does it now endanger the person's life, but all of the uh, 24 STDs out there, et cetera, et cetera. But the Bible said that we are called to peace. We're not designed to be in a marriage where we are living in constant war and turmoil and fighting and stuff like that. So, but to answer your question, again, I think this is a matter of, of conscience. For example, I have never held what people have done before they were saved uh, against them. Uh, I was foolish before I was saved. And I think that, um, in a very real sense, I think that needs to be considered. Um, so I, I am a little bit um, ambivalent to give you an answer of yes or no. I would say that if your conscience bothers you about this matter, I would not advise you to pursue it. But uh, I, I, I believe that at conversion, your past is wiped out. And I do feel that um, a person who has gone through a, a divorce before they were saved and you know, and they come into the Christian faith, it's all over. And I believe that they probably, in my judgment, um, depending on the the cause of the divorce, uh, would have legitimate grounds for for for, for marriage. But it's it's a serious it's a matter that. <laughs> I, I I feel the pain of what I mean. I could have made so many mistakes before I became a Christian. Uh, the Lord has preserved me and kept me from a lot of foolish mistakes. And I, uh, for example, if I might use an illustration, when I met my wife, my wife had three children before I married her. Uh, 
uh, she was not converted until many years after she had had her children. I think uh, um, her oldest child, she was uh, was 14 when she got converted, uh, et cetera, et cetera. When I met her, um, I couldn't hold her past against her. Uh, I was tempted to, to be very honest with you. But the more I met her and I understood the type of person she was, uh, I don't think another person was made for me. That's the honest truth. I don't think another woman could live with me uh, as a a husband and the kind of work I've done in terms of the ministry and endure the things I've endured. I just think she was the ideal person for me uh, in terms of my my marriage. So uh, I never held that against her. Well, she wasn't married before. It's a different situation. So I I think that... um, conscience is a matter that needs to give guidance in this matter. And I know of a lot of pastors who believe that a person's past before conversion is past, and they begin to deal with the individual from the moment of their conversion. I'm inclined that way as well, I must say that to you. But again, I cannot be totally dogmatic on the matter, and I would leave this to a matter of, of biblical co- your conscience. Pastor, we have a call from Antigua. Thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Hello, good night. Good night, sir. Good night to everyone um i just have a question i'm not sure exactly what topic you guys are talking about but i have a question sure um let's say you're going to a church right and you realize that the church does not have ministries um functioning and uh, you know everyone seems to it doesn't seem like it's a problem they seem to be comfortable um in that in that situation um, how do you, as a person, you know, if you're coming in or if you're there for a while, how do you, if it starts about you, how do you deal with something? How do you deal with something like that? You know, as a, if you're a young person, you know, and you really want to participate in ministries, how do you, how do you deal with something like that? And this doesn't seem to be anything there. Well, the first thing I would probably do uh, is to try to have a private meeting with the pastor. And I would um, request that meeting, and one-on-one, I would raise my concerns. If I'm just visiting the church, I'm trying to select a church to go to, or if I'm a member there, you know, depending on what, what my relationship is with the church. But I would definitely uh, express to him my concern that um, the church doesn't seem to have any kind of ministries, and everybody seems to be laid back and lackadaisical and, and quite self-satisfied. But when you look in the Scripture, um, you know, you've got gifts and talents and abilities that people have, and the church should be engaged in, in different ministries, evangelism, uh, missions, reaching out, etc., etc., and try to uh, get an explanation as to why um, why why are we not doing ministries, what, what, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think that his response would probably enlighten you as to the mindset of, of, of the, the leadership of that church. And on the basis of that response, you will have to decide, is this the type of church I want to be involved in? Uh, and, and I would like to say this, I, you always join a church where the doctrine is sound, the preaching is solid, but there also has to be some kind of in, involvement in ministries. And you should be in a place where you can use your God-given talent. Every single believer that's born again has at least one talent. We're sure about that. The Bible is very, very clear about that. So you don't want to just join a church and just sit down and be a sponge. 
you want to be able to give out and to share and to bless and to uh, encourage and, and minister. So if your gift is not able to be used in that ministry, I, my suggestion to you would be to search, keep keep on searching. You, you surely will find a place where the, your talents can be used and where you can feel comfortable. Uh, when I say comfortable, I don't mean you sit back and enjoy. I mean you really feel as though you're, you're in, engaged in ministry. Look, COVID has slowed down even our church. I must admit that to you. Um, for example, we have the adults on the school, but we've not been able to maintain the the, uh, the Sunday school for the children, which we had on Sunday evenings uh, about 4 o'clock going to about 6 o'clock. Uh, parents were kind of reluctant to send the children there. So we've had to, to uh, kind of curtail that. We're back with our Sunday morning service. We also have our, our prayer meeting and our Bible study on Thursdays. But the other ministries, we still do the care ministry, but it's limited. The care ministry is a ministry where we reach out. Uh, we have an uh, four different outreach mi- types of ministries that has been curtailed somewhat because it, part of it involves visiting the homes and going to the people and nobody's willing at these days to really receive you within the home home setting um, so I, I, it, it, the COVID has done some damage we uh, really were actually brought in material to, to start going into homes and do Bible studies twice uh, two Sundays per month where our members would, as a couple, would invite two two neighbors into their homes and then do a Bible study with that person. We were looking at, and then COVID came in and just destroyed everything. When I said destroyed it, it just brought that to an end. But to answer your question, I hope I'm not going around a circle. I do feel it's important that churches be ministering, and I feel that you're... I wish I had somebody, I mean, you're thinking that that's what a church should be doing and, and you want to get involved. Pastors look for people like, like, like yourself, to be very honest with you. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do hope that you find a ministry that can help you in that regard. But talk to the pastor, and out of his response, you will have an idea. Does he have a vision for anything in the future, or is he just drawing a check and enjoying just being having a social club where we get together, sing a few songs, and we go mm-hmm. home and twiddle our toes and, and stuff like that? I think you should, should I would recommend you do that first before you um, come to any other conclusion. All right. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Thanks so much for calling. We appreciate that. Yeah, thank you for the call. We appreciate you calling and continue to listen to That's Truth. Continue to encourage others to listen. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that has come in from Antigua. Read the question, and then play a little clip of a sure. video, and then read the question again. Blessed evening to you all, Pastor. Why do white people say the devil is a black man? Where in the Bible does it say the devil is a black man? I am a Christian, and I love everyone, black or white. All I know, white or black, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Stay safe. Take care. And have a blessed evening in Jesus' name. And here is, uh, the video was a little bit longer, but here's 40 seconds talking about the basis of his question. The highest award given to British officials who work abroad is the Order of St. Michael and St. George. This consists of a star with a little enameled painting and the painting shows the angel St. Michael standing on the neck of the devil and the devil is a black man. This image is very similar to one that we've become familiar with. A policeman kneeling on George Floyd's neck as he says, I can't breathe. And the idea of standing or kneeling on the neck of a black man is deeply embedded in these notions of dominance. 
of white people over black people, the dominance of Western nations over other countries. And the question again is, why do white people say the devil is a black man, and where in the Bible does it say the devil is a black man? Well, look, um, first of all, you can't put everybody in the same category, okay? I do not know. I've never heard um, any white person that I know uh, say that the devil is a black person. Uh, so I, I, can't, I can't respond to that said I've ever heard it. I do know this, that there is a historical aspect of racism um, among the British. Nobody can question that. That, that goes back to slavery, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it also must remember that uh, the theory of evolution has really had really emboldened racism in the 18th and the 19th century. Don't ever forget that eugenics was very, very common. And if you looked at Darwin's um, Origin of Species, the subtitle is The Survival of Superior Races, basically. That concept of evolution and the survival of the fittest was, was actually very strong in the 18th and the 19th century and conditioned people's mind to view uh, uh, races uh, from a, um, uh, a racial point of view. So I don't know it exists, etc., etc. Uh, the other thing is that the scriptures were really abused in that regard. The false interpretation and the um, hermeneutic that was used to, to try to equate, um, for example, um, the Hamites with the Canaanites and the curse upon Cain was supposed to be going on the Hamites. It's, it's not true. Uh, the Canaanites were the ones that were cursed. The Hamites were not cursed. So that also helped perpetuate the idea of uh, r racial inferiority, racial superiority. Look, you've got stupid white people, you've got stupid black people, you've got stupid Indian people, you've got st stupid green people. Everybody, I mean, you're going to meet stupid people all over the place. It's just that the stupid race, uh, race um, critical race theory in America that every white person is racist. That's not true. Absolutely not true. So I, you're going to meet people with crazy ideas all the time. What you've got to do is to start to look at people from the biblical perspective and uh, understand that every person is made in the image of God. Every person has value, that Christ died for the whole world, that whether you be pink, blue, or black, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you become part of that body, you become a family, and uh, you become brothers and sisters in Christ. And really, in truth and fact, um, a lot of the past stupidity, of the, uh, the past history of stupidity, uh, is now coming back to bite a lot of the, the modern situation. And I think that there are people who are exploiting it to create a lot of division that is quite unnecessary. Sure, there was racism in the past. Nobody can dispute that. But to say that America, for example, is a racist country is, is stupid. There are elements of racism in America. There are fractures of racism. But, but to say that the general population of America is racist is, is ridiculous, totally ridiculous. And I, I think that um, people who have uh, um, intentions and people who have uh, axe to grind uh, are exploiting this to try to further uh, uh, their gender. Uh, and I think that we ought to look at it for what it is, discern it. But as a Christian, we must treat people with dignity, with respect, whether, whatever race that person belongs to. And we must bring biblical principles to bring to bear upon social change and uh, not go along with um, a lot of what's happening. And the misfortune of the past uh, is something that you can't deny. It just has to be faced mm. and, and just move on from there. I was talking to somebody, you know, 
at the same time a lot of this nonsense was going on, remember that in England the, the whole society was changed. You had children working in the coal fields, for example, 12 to uh, 16 hours per day without a mask going into deep into the, and there was no concern about the, the, the welfare of those kids and there were not black kids there were white kids that were going to these kind of places that was the whole whole mindset behind that's not the, 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 the same mindset that prevails today some may ha- have the same old mindset but the vast majority of people uh, uh, really understand that a lot of what has happened in the past uh, was wrong and you, you just move on from there. You can't keep holding on to the past. Uh, if you don't, if you do that, you'll never have a, a brighter future. So you have to acknowledge the mistakes of the past and move on uh, with a new life using biblical principles uh, to help people understand the value of each other. Pastor, I was talking to someone today about how we can look back 100 years or even just 50 years and see how cultural norms were not correct. 100 years from now, if the world still exists, let's say 20 years from now, looking back at this time frame, what do you feel from a biblical worldview would be some of those cultural norms that we will realize are wrong or are misguided, miscalibrated? Well, uh, let me just make retract a little bit there, Nathan, and, and say a few things uh, about, this ma- about this matter. Uh, I remember in the 60s and the 70s, for example, there was a real um, problem with inter- um, interracial marriage. Okay. That was a massive problem. Uh, uh, the, 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 it was a very difficult. A lot of people got hurt during that period of time. And, uh, and again, it was rooted in using sometimes the Bible as a basis uh, for to separate the races, et cetera, et cetera. I think that did great injury to the church. I think the church had an opportunity to really have taken a stand for biblical truth and, and uh, understand that every person within the church being part of the body of Christ should be treated equally. And it was ridiculous that a person who was uh, a white Christian could not marry a black Christian, but he could marry a white Christian who was not a Christian. That didn't make any sense at all, basically. And I think that that is uh, something that has been done in the past that I think has been very painful. And to some extent, it has affected race relations even within churches. You still got the white church in America, the black church in America. There's an integration, a lot of integration now, but I think that's one of the great um, um, errors that were made uh, back then. And I think that um, I don't know if we'll ever fully get over it. I hope we do. But I think that things have radically changed as far as that is concerned. I don't think people have issues on those matters. And by the way, it's not just was the uh, the whites not marrying the blacks, but even if a black person married a white person, well, that you were betraying your brother or your sister. So there was that that kind of talk as well. So it went both ways. Um, uh, but that has changed radically in in, um, in our society, and and I'm, I'm so pleased that it has changed. And so that that kind of mythologies at once prevail uh, is now sh- shown to be bogus and, and people are beginning to understand that you can't it's not supported with scripture and you know people are people and there's only one race the human race we just have different ethnic groups and different colors and different pigmentation but there's only one race pastor is there any possibility that 20 years from now looking back you will say or people within your uh, denomination or church will say 
we should have accepted homosexuality as a norm. We should have accepted them as church leaders. Oh, no. Uh, I don't think that will ever happen, and I don't think it should ever happen. The Bible is very clear on these matters. Homosexuality is a sin. Lesbianism is a sin. Transgender is a myth. Okay, So the church must not surrender those principles, those are clear Bible principles. The Bible says, and such were some of you, and in Corinthians chapter 6. The church must not compromise on these marriage, for example. The church must never, ever uh, endorse same-sex marriage, never, ever do that. Uh, I think to do that is to surrender uh, to the culture and surrender to the social changes. But the church can only have impact by being different. We don't try to amalgamate with the world. That's the grievous mistake the church tries to make. When we are different and we hold the principles that, 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 that of Scripture and that we're willing to pay the price to hold to those principles, people then begin to understand that uh, this is not just a mythology. This is true truth that people are prepared to give their life for. They begin to understand. But, so I, we would never... Um, should and we will never surrender to the homosexual agenda or the lesbian agenda or the transgender and the other things that are coming I understand only there are 52 different 50 different uh, genders <laughs> how do you know how to begin to respond to that <laughs> no I just I just heard it on uh, one of the programs recently and I smiled but that gives you an idea how crazy the world is becoming and the church must take a stand on these matters and say listen this is where the nonsense stops it doesn't end here please uh, but we must be willing to pay the price when we do that at all costs you're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and I'm glad that you are in this confusing, often frustrating world. There is a voice of truth still, and it is the Bible. And here at the Radio Lighthouse, we are continuing to teach the Bible as the Word of God and as that unchanging source of truth. The name of the program is That's Truth. It is a live call-in program. There's a number of ways that you can interact with us, and we look forward to your interaction. Thank you to those who have already interacted with us on the program tonight. You can call and be put live on the air and ask your question at one 462 7420 I'll give that to you again as you get your phone unlocked and begin to type the number in. The phone is open and available, and the number is 268 462 7420. That'll put you live on the air. If you'd rather not go live on the air, but you still have a question, we would love for you to WhatsApp or text it to 1-268-782-1454. Maybe you have a question that you don't want it to be known that you're asking it, or you don't even want your island or location to be mentioned. Uh, if you have a question like that, just mention that you don't want your location to be mentioned, and we will keep it completely anonymous. You can WhatsApp or text your question to one 782 1454 We can also... Uh, be communicated on Facebook Live. You can ask your question, comment your question on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, and we can, uh, on your device there, you can listen behind the scenes, listen to the program, see behind the scenes what goes on to make this program available to you, and you can comment your questions. Uh, Pastor, did you have something else? Yeah, I, I just want to make a little comment on something that's currently being um oh yeah uh so there is something that has been going around 
uh, here specifically in Antigua. I know it's been a topic for a number of years uh, in Western society, but the idea of corporal punishment, uh, Pastor, I know there are many different views, even within so-called Christian uh, and biblical circles, but what does the Bible teach about corporal punishment? Look, there's no doubt whatsoever that corporal punishment is a legitimate means of of disciplining children. Um, the problem I have with politicians and people who lead the education in countries who claim to be Christians is that uh, I, I don't know if they take the Bible seriously or not. If God says that uh, it's it's right and proper to exercise discipline and use the, the rod to uh, drive foolishness out of the uh, heart of a child, and if you spare the rod and sp- you spoil the child, and he that uh, fears uh, f- um, refuses to discipline his child using the rod hates his child, but who that who that does it uh, loves him. Besides, look, it is very very clear that when you read the Bible, that this corporal punishment is a legitimate means to be used uh, to, to to deal with children. Um, what I think has happened is that the people who lead our governments, the people who lead our educational institutions, all come from the same poison fountain, and that is the schools and the universities that they go to. All of them are taught educational psychology, and they get into different psychology, and without failure, the impression that is given from these schools that they go to, that corporal punishment somehow warps the personality of the child, and therefore it should not be practiced. Uh, again, this is pure nonsense, pure nonsense. Nothing has destroyed the social fabric and the moral fabric of society more than uh, psychology. And you can have a debate on this matter, uh, as far as that is concerned, but it is it has really done a lot of damage, tremendous damage. Freud and Watson and all these guys, tremendous. they've done some good as well, but tremendous damage. Look, um, corporal punishment should be practiced in the home. It should be practiced in the school. The Christian school is an extension of the ministry of the church and the home. And parents delegate that responsibility to the to the teacher and the and the principal of the school. We have a situation of indiscipline all over society. You take that away now, and you worsen the whole situation. Uh, corporal punishment uh, should be administered depending on the nature of the offense. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be used and exercised in, 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 uh, in most cases or every case, but it depends on the nature of the offense. And I think to take away that tool from teachers and uh, from parents uh, is doing tremendous, will do tremendous damage uh, to the welfare of the children. Uh, I, I mentioned in another uh, forum recently that there is historical precedent for the damage that taking away uh, corporal punishment does to a generation, and that was in the 60s when this guy, Dr. Sprott, from the uh, psychologist in the U.S., advocated the doing away of corporal punishment because of the damage it would cause, uh, you know, make children violent if you if you do this, etc. Et what is, is amazing, years later, after he saw the product of what had happened because this was done in America, you couldn't discipline children, you couldn't use the rod any longer. I, when he saw the damage that was ultimately done, he wrote another book actually admitting that he was wrong on this matter. But meanwhile, the damage has been done, the damage continues. The generation of Americans today that you have, uh, I heard uh, on another forum this week of um, a teacher 
being pushed and shoved and uh, virtually manhandled by students. He can't do anything in the States, otherwise he get fired. Mm. That's where we'd be headed when children learn that they can't be punished, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's a gross mistake, uh, an evil mistake, not to use the rod in uh, home and in the school. The idea that you just talk to children uh, the Bible doesn't say that talking will drive away the foolishness from children. It said the rod will. The question is, are we wiser than God? That is the ultimate question it boils down to. Is the Bible relevant? Is it, is, is, is it God's book or not? Does he know the blueprint for what is needed in the home? Uh, and I would rather let God be true and every man a liar. And I think that um, people need to humble themselves and understand that God is the final authority in these matters and just follow what God says, and we'll improve society. We can never become a disciplined society the way we're going, in the direction we're going, that uh, there's no consequences to what people do. And I think um, if we uh, follow suit in that matter, I really think it's going to hurt the school. And uh, we already got a lot of indiscipline in the public school. We don't want that in the private school. Uh, So I think that Christian schools ought to fight, even if it requires going to court to defend the right to exercise corporal punishment uh, within the school. Pastor, is there a difference between abuse and appropriate corporal punishment that the Bible teaches? Of course. Uh, look, I, I, I understand. I didn't see it myself. But I understand that it was in the Observer paper about two children who got damaged and there were some kind of visual pictures of the, the kind of stuff like that. Again, the government has already given certain strictures about corporal punishment that you shouldn't beat a child in his hand. So why, why then don't take legal action against these teachers who committed the offense? The proper place for the rod is the buttocks. The Lord has made it quite spacious and quite broad and and, and quite uh, able to handle a spanking. You don't hit a child in the hand and damage the hand, etc., etc. So I think there's a lot of difference between... Look, um, I think principals uh, who really care about kids and a child really deserves uh, a whipping, I think that after that whipping is done, I think it's explained why it's happening, uh, administered, then you hug the child. You tell the child, listen, you know, I love you, I care about you, I'm looking after your welfare, and uh, you may not appreciate what I'm doing now, but I think later on in life you'll, you'll appreciate it. I think if that is done lovingly and tenderly and affectionately, I think children begin to understand that. Look, all of us, including myself, I got a lot of licks for my mom. Sometimes it would be labeled abuse today. I've been beaten with a bottle, I've been beaten with a stick, I've been beaten with a dog whopper. Uh, you just name it, I've had it. I've, I've had my, the knee in my chest, I've had that happen. But you know what? I call my mother blessed today because if she had not done some things that even though I didn't like that at the time, uh, I don't know where I would be today. Mm. I went to school as well, Nathan, that... Um, I remember uh, Mr. Gall, I'll never forget this gentleman, uh, a principal that when you walk into the, when he walked into the auditorium, because it was a broad auditorium, with all, it was not divided in my day. For the time he stepped in, you could hear a pin drop. Mm-hmm. He had that amount of control. He was a disciplinarian. And uh, if you did an exam, I remember it wasn't even in secondary school, and you, you, you were told if you're doing uh, an exam and you got below 50, you're going to get a whipping. You know what incentive that was? <laughs> you talk about incentive? And quite frankly, I think I would be a dodo bird and a dum-dum if there were not consequences 
so I thank God that I went to school where there was corporal punishment. I thank God that I had a mother, even though she handled it sometimes in the wrong way, that disciplined me. And I thank God that I had a father that when he licked me, I didn't need licks for another six months because he would take an hour to give me six lashes and he would talk to me. That was pain. <laughs> that was the right way to deal with it. So I... Um, I have no misgivings about the exercise, and I think it's a biblical principle and ought not to be surrendered by the Christian school. What do you think of this statement from a biblical worldview? Poor parenting puts a heavy strain on our teachers and learning institutions. I think that's well said. Uh, the problem is you don't have discipline in the home. So when you send them to school, now the teacher has to be a teacher it has to be a parent at the same time. That adds an additional burden to their responsibilities. Uh, and uh, look, I, I, I know that there's a gentleman that came from the Philippines, uh, Mr. Magalong, uh, who was going to try to start a program here. Uh, I think the government was fully in support of it, trying to address the problems of the home. I thought it was an excellent idea, and I thought I would commend the government and the Prime Minister for having that vision, that the real problem that needs to be addressed is, sorry. Go ahead. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, good evening. Hi, Mr. Williams. How are you doing, sir? Fine, thank you. Doing well. How can we help you? Well, I have a lot, a lot, a lot on my chest right now, and I don't want you to see. You're going to what the prayer I asked for. Yes, for your daughter? Yes, no, for my wife's niece. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. And because she, I know she's in, in the hospital intensive care and she really wants prayers and I really want just to pray for her and if you could help to pray. W- what's her name? Okay. Her name is Miley. Miley. Yeah. And uh, w- in the hospital, what's the nature of the problem right now? Well, right now she is in intensive care. Her pressure is very high. Uh-huh. Almost 200 over 180. Wow. So she really need of right now and Okay. We really appreciate it if you you have a prayer yeah. for me. Well look, let, let's have a short prayer for her. Is that okay with you? Yeah, I will appreciate that. Okay, let's pray. Father, we hear the concern of our brother Williams and we pray for Miley. Um her pressure is extremely high and I trust you'll help the doctors to be able to discern uh, the particular cause of this uh, high blood pressure. We pray that your presence will surround her. If she's not a believer, doesn't know Christ as Savior, we pray, Lord, that you use this moment to draw near to her through your Holy Spirit and convert her of the need of putting her faith and trust in Christ. We pray for a family who will be greatly concerned at this point in time. We pray that you will calm them and give them comfort if there are believers Help them to offer prayers and offer encouragement uh, to Miley. And we also pray for Mr. Williams and pray for his wife as they to express concern uh, for their family member. We ask for healing if it's in your will. And we pray for the doctors to be given the wisdom to know how best to deal uh, with her condition. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. And don't forget tomorrow, if you, if you don't call me, I have a little token call. Okay, uh, I will give you a buzz tomorrow. We'll okay, do that. No Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Brother Williams. Thank you for calling. And.
Thank you for listening to That's Truth, and we will, as a Radio Lighthouse staff, be praying for your niece, Miley. Pastor, we have a question from Antigua. Pastor Murphy, how often should a person sow seed? Should a minister use part of Scripture to let persons sow seed? Look, this whole sow seed thing needs to stop and to end, okay? Uh, it is something that is borrowed from the what's going on in the Pentecostal movement, especially the charismatic movement, etc., and now it's, it's spreading. The whole idea, it is totally a, a religion of covetousness. You are given to God in order to get. And uh, if you sow uh, $100, you're supposed to get back tenfold, etc., etc. This kind of nonsense is not biblical, it's not scriptural. It's about time that the people in the church start calling out these pastors for this kind of mercenary um, abuse of scripture. So I, there's nothing in the Bible about you sowing a seed and getting back a seed, etc., etc., talking about uh, money. Uh, the Bible says that you give, don't even let you know what your left hand, giving your right hand. And you don't give to God in order to get back. You give, you give in order, the, the, whatever you give might be used to bless others. And of course, uh, God has made promises in His Word that uh, He will not be, uh, who honors Him, He will honor. If you honor God with a gift, God will honor you. But you just don't give to get that. You, you give to God out of humility out of the gratitude that God is and thanksgiving to what God has done in your life and you also give to God in order that the work of the ministry might continue remember that church is about missions uh, carrying the gospel to the end of the world and uh, a church ought to be able to, to be able to help uh, people who want to go on the mission field to carry the glad tidings. And there's about missions at home as well, and ministering at home. And every every ministry requires, even your Sunday school, for example, if you have a Sunday school ministry, you have to buy Sunday school material. Uh, you have to have uh, certain physical assets within the, the room in order to teach your children, etc., etc. If you're involved in a care ministry of trying to reach out to people in need in the community, you have to give food hampers uh, and all that requires uh, money as well. And uh, if there are other, other ministries you want to get involved in, like uh, drug ministry, rehab centers, uh, orphanages, uh, halfway houses, all of that requires some, kinds of, uh, some kind of revenue to help maintain it. So you, you give to the Lord so that the ministry can be fulfilled. But um, this idea of, of sowing the seed and keep uh, squeezing and squeezing the queen's head all the time to get more out of it and draw more juice out of the people, I think that that is, uh, in my judgment, abuse of Scripture. And I think that people ought to call out pastors on this matter. Get back to letting them, let them preach the Word and go through the Word and do some good expository preaching, and they'll come to giving, and they can talk about giving uh, on those kind of things. But they keep harping, harping, harping. When people are not saved, they're coming to the church, and all they hear about this uh, giving and seed and sowing seed, it turns people off. They begin to realize that this has become a mercenary ministry now. So I, I'm, I'm against it. Hey, another question from a listener. June is Pride Month, Gay Pride Month. Pastor, how should I respond to the following I believe in God. God is a black trans woman. Stupidity, that's pure stupidity, probably on steroids. Um, I, I don't know where we're headed. Is there uh, anything biblical about that? Absolutely not. There's nothing biblical there whatsoever. And by the way, we should not be celebrating uh 
Gay Pride Month. Uh, Homosexuality should be something that people should be ashamed of, something that is perceived as an aberrant, uh, abnormal uh, uh, behavior, and uh, something that is contrary against God's will, contrary against the concept of marriage and gender. Uh, so this is not something that we celebrate. This is something that we should uh, actually call out that it is wrong and evil. That doesn't mean that we hate uh, gay people and we abuse them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But at the same time, we must not let them feel that what their lifestyle is something that we will uh, we can endorse. We cannot endorse it. Neither will we tolerate it. And in the church, it doesn't belong. No homosexual belongs in the church. Uh, the church should not have a homosexual member. Uh, because he's living contrary uh, to the, the, the demands of God's moral law. So um, I don't celebrate it. I would never celebrate it, and I don't endorse homosexuality. I will never endorse homosexuality. Um, I, um, it's evil at its very core, and it will get worse. It's going to become more militant and more militant, and they don't just want you to the fact that you tolerate the fact that they live that lifestyle. They want you to support it, and they want you to endorse it. And if you don't support it, endorse it, they are coming for you eventually, either using the courts or using some other physical means. But it is a, it is going to be a militant, violent movement. Read the, read the book of um, Genesis chapter 19. I'll give you an idea where homosexuality eventually leads. Uh, you've got this situation there where um, an angel visits um, Lot. Lot and warn him to escape the place. And then these bunch of homosexuals... And by the way, it, we are told that both men and... and, and uh, and, and boys, basically, it's not just, it's a whole generation, and they are bent on taking uh, advantage of the angelic being. And, of course, uh, we know the story, how uh, God intervened, and, and God gave blindness, etc., and destroyed the whole city of Sodom and Gomorrah because of the moral perversion. And we're headed, the world is headed to that final end because this cannot continue indefinitely. Uh, if God destroys Selgomar because of the immorality and the, the, the perversion, um, I don't see how he can allow it to be perpetuated indefinitely within modern societies without some kind of judgment. One other comment or uh, question to get your thoughts on a statement, and then we'll jump into our topic. Sure. If you praise a woman who aborted her child because she did what was best for herself, then I hope you praise a man who abandoned their children because they did what was best for themselves. Well, we never praise any abortion, and we never praise any man for abandoning the child. I uh, wasn't directed at you. I, I, I know, I know, I understand that. Uh, I understand the question. We got to understand that abortion is murder, M-U-R-D-E-R. It is willful murder of innocent children. And uh, life begins at conception. The Bible is very clear on this matter. And a believer cannot support abortion. Um, and I think, uh, as far as I am concerned, this is one of the biggest moral issues that people who are heavy into politics uh, need to understand um, is, is an issue that should, should pretty much um, dictate what party you support. You cannot support a party that uh, ad- advocates and uh, endorses abortion. You have become complicit in the murder of innocent. That's my problem with America. America has murdered over 50 million babies since 1974. Uh, and I, it, it, I can't imagine 
you think about that for just a moment. The, take the population of, of the Caribbean, for example. Uh, it must be what maybe maybe twenty million people. They would have done killed almost three times the entire population of the whole Caribbean. Think about that for just a moment. Uh, that is evil. It is wrong, and uh, they're going to pay a price for it eventually because God is the moral um, judge of the universe. And you cannot sin with impunity, especially when you kill so many innocent lives. There has to be a price to pay, and I think America is going to pay it at some point in the future. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.26. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. For this program, on Tuesday nights, you can also join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and all right there on your tablet, you can listen to the program, watch behind the scenes, comment, and you can also ask your questions. And if you have a topic you'd like us to consider for a future episode, we would love for you to share that also. If you'd like to call and be put live on the air and ask your question, you can call one 268 462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, send it to 1-268-782-1454. Until we have any further questions come in, Pastor, we're going to jump back into our topic. We started last week, and that was the topic of the church's role in society. As controversial as that topic is, I think it is very critical for us to understand what the Bible teaches. Can you give us a brief overview of what you would have covered last week? Yeah, we, well, we, we mentioned that there's no clear mandate that kind of defines the relationship between the church and the state in any special arrangement. Uh, we did uh, mention that um, it is probably best that um, each fulfill its distinct purpose uh, and given as much latitude and freedom to be able to operate within their own sphere of instrument, uh, influence uh, and so that they both have maximum freedom. But we must remember that every social institution uh, operates within a limited space. And as one social institution expands, it diminishes the freedom of the other. So if the church begins to take over too much power, it means it diminishes the role of the church. If the church begins to take over too much, it diminishes churches. So there has to be some kind of a uh, a balance between both in, in that regard. We I did mention that this um, from a um, historical perspective, there are actually four ways that uh, the church has interacted with the state. Um, from history, you've got where the state at one time controlled the church. The first 300 years, for example, of church history, there was no place for the church in terms of any kind of government interaction. As a matter of fact, the, the government persecuted the church and saw the church as a threat because the church refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. They only acknowledged one Lord, and that was Jesus Christ, and that created problems. And so the church was challenged and had to survive all the persecution. It was perceived as a enemy of the state and uh, insurrectionist institution that could endanger the state because it would not acknowledge the lordship of Caesar for the first 300 years. So the state controlled the church, basically. That change in, in uh, about 312 with the uh, Constantine's conversion, where after his conversion, now he gave the church um, legal, 
And eventually, uh, through a lot of intrigue and a lot of control, the church actually began to control the state, especially during the Dark Ages, so that emperors and, and kings were heavily dependent on the endorsement of uh, of the of the Pope and the religious leaders, and to, to to in order to be put in their positions, because they were under the threat of excommunication uh, under interdict, where the the, ch- the church can actually put a whole state on the interdict where there's no admission of of communion and uh, certain rights, and of course, in that period of history, the thinking was, you know, um, you could be lost without having these different uh, sacraments administered by the church. So, And then um, we also came to the point where during the, um, the Reformation, uh, 1517, uh, Luther, uh, where the Protestants began to make a clear distinction between the church and the state. And the idea was that the church had a proper sphere of power, and the state have a proper sphere of power. But it, w- it was not designed that they could not interact. It was not about influence. The church could influence the, the state. The state could influence the church. It's just that they wanted the church to operate within its proper sphere. And the, and this, and the, but it was the idea of keeping the church out of, out of government and influence of government, that was never part of the Protestant belief. Uh, and for example, it's a misnomer uh, not to understand, for example, that when your, your country was founded, uh, the idea that there was not to be any interaction between the church and the state, that's a myth. <laughs> the entire American Constitution and a lot of the original leaders always felt that the church had a major role to play. What they did not want to do was to endorse any one particular church, but they believed in religious freedom, and they did believe that the church had a, a very prominent role to play within the politics of America. It never was excluded. As a matter of fact, even today, you've got a chaplain of the of Congress and religious advisors to the prime ministers, etc., and presidents, etc. So, and then um, the the Journey Reformation, of course, you had the Anabaptist movement, which was the strongest movement that really felt that the secular uh, government dealt with the non-Christian, the church dealt with the believers. So there was no cross. Uh, um, integration between the two. There were two separate entities, and one did not try to uh, get involved with the other. Uh, Baptists have always believed in the separation of the church and the state, but uh, it's also believed that uh, the church can influence the politics of a country, and you can get involved in those type of matters. And then that led, of course, uh, Nathan, to the 18th and 19th century, where uh, for the first time, for a hundred years, the Anglican evangelicals uh, coming out of the Western revival uh, dominated the uh, the English way of thinking and used the influence in Parliament to deal with all the social ills and problems that were there and, and then. So that is a, a general overview of uh, the the matter, uh, how the church and state has interacted. Now, I know in your historical sketch, and you gave a brief overview of that, but as you talked about the role of the church last week, you referenced the role of the Anglican evangelicals, and especially, and I believe I'm pronouncing this right, the Clapham sect. How do you feel, why do you feel they were so effective or so influential in changing the mind of their generation? Well, uh, this particular group that you're talking about, um, I think this is a landmark in, in, in Christian uh, history, church history. Uh, the impact that they've had, um, 
This uh, was a group that virtually was made up of Wilberforce, Granville Sharp, uh, Thomas Clarkson, Zachary Macaulay, uh, Lord Shatterstbury was also a part of it, and they had determined to cure the 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 uh, moral and social ills of of England at that point in time. Um, they're the ones that sought to end slavery, uh, wanted to humanize uh, factories and, and prisons, uh, relieve uh, debt burdens that people had, opposed discrimination against minorities, uh, wanted to establish a day of rest, and did establish a day of rest, which was Sunday in, in England, and also um, even the, the National Lottery. Uh, was done away with because of their influence. Uh, simple things like cock fighting, which is still part of our culture, dog fighting, all that was, was ended as a result of their influence. And uh, they might have gone a little bit uh, even further where they were able to get legislation against profanity and even adultery. That was for, that gives you an idea of how powerful these, these, these people were. But how they uh, did it and how they mobilized and became so effective is uh, you look at the variety of means that they use and might be that out of some of the tools that they use to uh, wield this kind of influence that we can probably learn from it and uh, perhaps use some of the same tools uh, in dealing with the social e- e- evils of our time. Let me just uh, mention some of these things for you. Uh, how they went. Number one, they were very politically active Many, uh, several of them belonged to Parliament itself, and they were able to bring their Christian influence and their Christianity to Parliament. This is where, when I hear people saying that you must keep religion out of politics, I, I wonder what would have been the consequences of that if these the people were living today. Would you say that we'd still have slavery? Oh, yeah, we would still have that because mm. it is through the effort of these people that really uh, this, the, the conscience of, of, of England was changed and transformed as a result of, of the action. Uh, some of them, as well, what they did, they were not authorities in any particular field. In some, but what they did is that they educated themselves and became uh, well knowledgeable in areas that they want to attack. Take slavery. They became experts at finding out what the slave trade was about, about uh, what were the stages of it, how they treated the slaves. And they took all of that information and was able to bring that to Parliament to really explain the atrocities of it. So what they were not cognizant of they spent the time investigating and researching to gather the information to present to the people and to the parliament so that people became conscious of the real evils of this movement. Um, the other thing is, is how they use money. Uh, when slavery was ended in England, uh, they founded a colony called the Sierra Leone in 1787. It became the home of free slaves who went from England back to Africa. And for 20 years of the beginning of that uh, colony, it was supported through private donations. In other words, they were able to get the funding to get that particular state established and kept it going for 20 years through the donations. So they utilized um, the money and personnel within this, the country to get money to help fund that, that, that thing. The other thing is that... Um, in order to get a day of recognition for worship, in other words, that to stop commercial activity on one day and recognize Sunday as a day of, of rest, basically, and a day of worship, <laughs> uh, a, a guy by the name of Agnew, a Scottish evangelical member of parliament, he brought up thousands of, of railroad shares so the railroad would not run on Sunday. 
and he used his own resources, uh, and, and, and it's through that kind of an effort, uh, Sunday became a day of worship, and etc. But again, he's using his own personal funds to get that done. Um, the other thing is that when the East Indian uh, Company, a very powerful company, was trying to ban uh, missionary work in India, because they understood that once missionary work was done, the trading and the commerce and the abuse of it, it was just a matter of time before it folded. So what the Chapman uh, Christians did uh, to, to do that, when the, the, uh, the East Indian Company stopped and banned missionaries from going to India, they came together and bought out and took over the entire stock of the director of the company for the purpose of allowing the gospel to be reached to India. Again, they're using financial Monetary. resources, yeah. personal resources in that regard. The other thing, Nathan, that they do was to use boycott. In order to help end the, the, the slavery, I think I mentioned another program, they got the people in England to stop buying West Indian sugar. Because if it was slave labor that was producing the sugar, we're just going to uh, boycott it. So that was another method that, that, that was used. Uh, but the greatest weapon that they had was how to influence public opinion. And what they did, Nathan, was that they took their campaign to the public and had public meetings and spoke to these issues so that they were able to reverse the value system of entire people within one generation by exposing and, and, and in public and talking these things in public and informing the public what was really going on. So those are five different ways that they, they use it. Very, very effective. And I think that we can learn from these methods and perhaps employ some of these methods even in dealing with some of the social problems uh, today. As you were listing some of those methods, I thought about in the day and age we live, even with the LGBTQ movement, they are using some of those exact same methods to swing politicians and public opinion back the other direction. Yeah, well, I, you know, there's a, a master book, I forgot the title of it, of uh, will explain to you how this whole gay agenda was engineered. The person who actually came up with a strategy. And what you're seeing done today is part of that strategy of how to change public opinion, etc., etc. It was not by accident that these things are happening. They had to strategize. And they know that the way to get people to fall in line is to hit people in their pocket. So to get m multinational companies uh, aligning with them, you they offer boycotts and once they begin to get a pinch in their pocket they pretty much fall in line with that because look the bible says the love of money is the root of all evil all the social evils that you can name in society at the root of it all is a mercenary monetary motive that if it is only clipped and destroyed the social problem will go away but it's hitting people at their pocket really is, is a matter of great concern you were referencing the social action by the church. Is that the same thing as social gospel? And if not, what exactly is the social gospel? Look, uh, there is a social element uh, uh, to the gospel itself. I don't think anybody would disagree with that because there is a vertical dimension where we love God and there's a horizontal dimension where we love our fellow man. And for the first 300 years, uh, as I gave you a kind of historical sketch, the church... Uh, while it had no active role in anything to do with government, uh, 
the church was the social institution that was taking care of the poor, the widows, looking after orphans, trying to deal with uh, people in prison, taking care of those kind of things. So the church has always had a social dimension to it. Even if you look in the book of Acts, uh, I think it's the third and fourth chapter, where uh, people who had means, like land and property, uh, were willing to forego that private property, sell it, give it to the apostles so that those with needs were met through the sacrifice of believers who had means. So even at the very early beginning, and, and again, you would understand why, Nathan, because when a person put their faith and trust in Christ in the New Testament in the first hundred years, especially if you were a Jew, that meant that you were completely disowned. You were betraying Judaism, and you were following a false Messiah. So there was no inheritance, and your family birth Even today, by the way, if a Jew mm-hmm. uh, were to do that, he's disowned by his family if he turns to yeah. Christ and calls him the Messiah. And businesses and will try businesses and shut will, down. Shut, you don't, yeah. can't find a job. You can't find a place to work. Unless you had a trade or skill, uh, you were at the mercy of, of uh, the merchant class, basically. Uh, and the church came and filled that void because when they put their faith and trust in Christ, they still had to eat, still had to be clothed. And church believers who had means were willing to make the sacrifice, sell their property in order to have a, a, a pool of resources to help those who were less fortunate. So there's a social element uh, to this matter. But when it comes to the the social gospel um, uh, it really began in the 19th century and uh, took traction in the 20th century. And it did begin as a Christian movement with an aim of bringing biblical principles into the modern society. And the general idea was to Christianize society and bring in the kingdom of God. Remember that during this period of time, the the principle of being an amillennialist, uh, the idea, you know, in the, in the book of um, Revelation chapter 20, talking about a thousand-year rule of Christ on planet Earth, that was taken as symbolic that Christ would rule to his church for a thousand years. So they had this vision that the church will transform society and make society into some kind of a utopia, and the society would be Christianized, and it was the responsibility of the church to begin to Christianize uh, the entire world. So the social gospel, that was the original intent to Christianize society, and they missed this mandate because the mandate of the New Testament is not to Christianize society, it's to call men from to escape the wrath to come, to put the faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and to escape the corruptions in the world through lust. That was the mandate. Uh, but the church... Um, um, in its zeal to try to solve all the social problems, uh, took on another agenda, which was a social agenda to Christianize uh, the world. So, but then it became corrupted, and this social gospel uh, and began to advocate a new gospel agenda, uh, which was not the good news of putting your faith and trust in Christ, but the emphasis of redeeming society. And that is where the social gospel really began to go wrong. So can you be a follower of the social gospel and be lost? Of course you can be a follower of the social gospel and be lost. You can be a follower of the the Christian church and be lost as well. Um, What we got to understand is that the true gospel is a gospel about a personal relationship between a person and Christ, and it requires a person repenting of their sins, putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It involves a man being born of God. It it calls for a person becoming a new creature in Christ. But after that 
redemptive work is done in a person's life. The Bible says the believer devotes his life to a, a ministry of good works. And that's where the social aspect of the gospel comes in. Every believer uh, in Christ should use his influence wherever he is, whether it be at his workplace, whether it be at his, in his society, whether it be uh, a teacher, a, a nurse, a doctor, uh, to try to influence people in the direction of Christ. And also uh, should be willing to meet, try to meet the needs of those who are really hurting uh, and to do what the Bible calls good works, which involves a lot of social activity and a social um, involvement. Pastor, a WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good evening, Pastor. What can you say about the following? A wife and her husband are going to a different church, and now the wife is going with her husband to the same church. What do you think about that? Repeat that again. Good evening, Pastor. What do you have to say about the following? A wife and her husband are going to a different church, and now the wife is going to church with her husband. What do you think about that? I'm not even sure what... I I would think if the wife is going with her husband, though, uh, I would think that's a good thing. I really believe that a wife should be with her husband. Uh, I don't believe that it's it's the proper thing for a wife to be going one place and a, a husband going the other place. I think they need to be... Unity is not just a matter of physical unity or monetary unity or financial unity. It also involves spiritual unity. So it would be the proper thing for a wife... Uh, would be to follow her husband. I tell people when I'm doing biblical counseling and premarital counseling that that is one of the things that need to be settled before. If a person is coming from two different denominations, uh, I always point out that where is the child going to be brought up? Where are you going mm-hmm. to go to church? You don't wait until you're married then to settle that. You settle that before you, you get married. And uh, I think it confuses a child. Uh, if you've got uh, take a child going to um, a, one parent going to Jehovah's Witness Church another church going to the Baptist or to a Seventh-day Adventist total confusion you want unity of faith and you want to pass on the faith to your children so I think it's important that a wife follows her husband and before you get married you need to make up your mind whether or not you can follow him spiritually if you can my counsel to you is uh, do not marry because it's not going to work out. But pastor, I love him. What for the listener that says that I don't love a man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing about it is, where's your priority? Uh, do you love God more than you love your husband? Uh, and uh, your 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 commitment to God is is primary. It is it, it is fundamental, but it is also preeminent. Uh, so you have to weigh those things before. Uh, you you know you can marry somebody uh, that you love that you should get married to. You could fall in love with the wrong person. So it's a matter of not just the fact that you fall in love with the person you love the person. You've got to put God first in your life and, and put your spiritual uh, dimension in your life as a, as a primary aspect before you go into this kind of a marriage. I'm sure that there's someone asking this question because it just came to my mind. Pastor, I'm single. How do I know when I fall in love with the right person? Because you just said that I could fall in love with the wrong person. Uh, well, again, I would hope that now that you're single, I'm hoping that you've, you've established some kind of uh, biblical base for principles that would guide the selection of a mate. Uh, and I think that's where you have to go and search the scriptures and see what are the responsibilities of a husband and a wife. What does God expect? What, what kind of a model the person wants? So I would hope that you would set some kind of standards before you um, you you decide to go into dating. You have an idea what the ideal person would be. 
but I would I would uh, suggest to you uh, that you look for a person who is a Christian. But not all Christians are good Christians. You want a Christian who is uh, have a devotional life. You want a Christian who takes the Bible seriously and accepts the Bible as God's Word. You have a Christian that you can read the Bible with and pray with. You have a Christian who lives by biblical principles and have form moral principles. I would warn you and I would caution you that if a person claims to be a believer and wants to uh, sleep with you before you get married, I would caution you very much to uh, terminate that relationship and move on to a real Christian relationship. Um, don't be misled um, by these matters. Uh, the Bible is very, very clear that sex belongs only and exclusively with a monogamous marital relationship. Any person that has pushed you in the direction to get you involved sexually before you're, uh, uh, before you're uh, married, my advice to you is to drop, don't let you drop a piece of lead and move on to find a good, decent, godly, Bible-believing, committed Christian, uh, I would suggest. And then also the personality. Uh, you need to look at, at they're responsible. Does he like his job? Does he like work? If he doesn't like work, doesn't like a job, dump him. He'd be living off of you, and you <laughs> dump him very, very, very fast. Right? Does he go to church? Is he actively involved in the church? If he's a Christian and he's going to church, but he's not actively involved, that is suspect that his Christianity is... is um, not at the level it should be. He should get involved in ministry and get involved in, in the Lord's work. You want somebody who loves the Lord and engage in the Lord's ministry. And then the other thing I would just advise you very quickly is to get to meet his family. Uh, talk to his fa mom, his dad, his brothers, his sisters. Go home and, and, and uh, see what's going on in the home and the family. Uh, those are just some general guidelines I think that would be very, very helpful. And above all, pray and ask God to block the way uh, that is not for you and to lead you uh, in the right way. And the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, Trust in the Lord with all thy heart, lean not on thy own understanding, in all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. So acknowledge him in this aspect of your life, this, this um, dating aspect of your life. Acknowledge him in that. Ask him to get involved in it as well. And um, trust him and ask him for guidance. That was some good advice. I know people have gone and paid a lot of money for advice that wasn't as biblically sound as that. And if you, I know Pastor just threw a lot at you, but if you want to hear it again, be sure you tune in to the rebroadcast of this program on Saturday afternoon from 3.30 until 5 p.m. We are talking about the topic of the church's role in society, and we were discussing the social gospel. Pastor, is there anything else you want to reference in relation to the difference between the social gospel and the true gospel? I would just say that uh, Christians, because the social gospel has become corrupted in terms of how it is, is being portrayed today, we must uh, not um, in any way uh, fail to understand that we have social responsibilities and as a church we have to try to meet the needs of those who really have legitimate needs. We must not encourage young people to live off welfare or live off uh, the, the, the blessings of God's people. People who are able-bodied and who can work, <clears throat> they need to find work. People who are destitute and really need help, the church needs to do as much as possible to help that person. <clears throat> so we have a social aspect to the gospel. And now we see that in our Lord. Our Lord not only 
cater to people's spiritual aspect of it, but many times he healed and he fed people. Uh, we, we know that. And A follow-up to the question that came in in relation to the husband and wife attending the <clears throat> same church. But, Pastor, most of the time the husband is not going to church. The woman, most of the time, is the one who's most serious about church. Well, I, I, I don't know what kind of uh, Christian home that is uh, be talking about. Um, but I would say to uh, a wife, if I was uh, her, I would try to encourage my husband to go with me. Um, if it requires I getting up early and fixing his breakfast and doing something special, um, I would do that. If it requires uh, trying to encourage him to go to sleep early on Saturday so that he's ready for Sunday morning, I would do that. Uh, I would try to, um, I would not annoy him. If he's not a believer, I would not annoy him by keep quoting Bible verses and et cetera, et cetera, and doing things that normally would irritate him. Uh, I would just live the life before him and show him love and affection. And I think, and I would be a submissive wife uh, to him as well. And I think by that, uh, Peter talks about this, by the way, how uh, unsaved uh, how a saved wife can win a husband. And one thing that Peter said is not going to be by talk. It has to do by their life. Um, but I would. But if my husband wasn't going with me all the time, um, I if he's not offended, and even if he were, I would try to let him understand I have uh, a God-given responsibility to be in God's house. I don't have to be there every Sunday. Um, I would like to be there every Sunday, but I would have no misgivings if I just stayed home at one Sunday and uh, encourage him to maybe watch a good Christian program to get exposed to the gospel. But that is something that the two of you need to work out. And I think any husband that knows that his wife really cares about him, really loves him, really respects him, and uh, has a true, genuine faith that is exhibited in her life, uh, very seldom would you find a husband uh, disposed to prevent her from going to church. It all has to do with her relationship, with her attitude towards him and her behavior. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.56 on this Tuesday evening. We just have a couple of minutes left in tonight's program. Pastor, what about the case where the wife is saved, the husband is not, the husband lets the wife go to church, but the wife wants to tithe even on money that she has earned, and the husband, the unsaved husband, says, no, you can't do that. What's the biblical advice that you have? Well, I don't know what the arrangement is uh, in the marriage in terms of finances. In in a lot of cases, um, unless they pool the resources and have one common joint account, normally the wife works, the husband works, and in some cases the wife contributes to the home, the husband contributes to the home, and whatever she has uh, um, is hers. Uh, I know about that arrangement. I don't think it's ideal. Uh, in a lot of cases as well, you've got where the two people pool together, they have a common account, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, tithing and giving is, is part of Christian responsibility. And I would try to persuade my husband, if I was in that situation, that um, I have a God-given responsibility to give to the Lord. And um, he give, is given priority. Uh, there are things that we have to obey God rather than man. And if she's convinced that this area of her responsibility is to give to the Lord and she wants to do that, 
I don't think there'll be a problem with the Lord understanding because he gets priority. This is an area where she's convinced that the Lord is, uh, this is the Lord, her responsibility to God. I think that she should do what she believes God is leading her to do. Try to argue with her husband, try to reason with him, and uh, if you can't win him over, you've got to obey God rather than men. Pastor Murphy, in the last uh, 90 seconds of tonight's episode, any concluding thoughts on what we've covered? I know we haven't finished the topic yet, but in relation to the social gospel, in relation to the church's biblical role in society? Yeah, I would say that the church has pretty much been good at condemning a lot of evils in society. Uh, They can point out evils, they can highlight evils. Where I find the church has been deficient is responding to those needs. Uh, for example, uh, you know, you, 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 we, we condemn um, women for committing abortion, uh, and rightfully so, don't misunderstand me, but are we doing anything to offer an alternative for a young girl who is maybe 15 or 16? Um, it's going to jeopardize her future, her home, her academic life, etc., etc. Uh, do we have some means of trying to help her that go through with the pregnancy and we will take care of the child, put the child up for adoption or, or, or whatever? Uh, I think that is one of the f- great uh, errors of the church, being able to identify evils but never really approaching how to deal with the matter. Uh, the other thing is um, ch- children who need, uh, who are abused and who need proper parenting. Do we have an orphanage that we can take those kids under our wings and give them good biblical training, good care? Uh, Do we have that? It's one thing to condemn the abuse, but have we got an alternative? So the challenge would be that Bible teaching churches should organize some of these efforts. Yeah, I think I think it's legitimate that we where we see a need that we try to meet that need. Uh, if we can, as best as possible, using biblical principles. Be sure that you tune in next Tuesday. As Lord willing, we continue this topic of the church's role in society. Have a blessed night. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.